I'll read the scripture to you, and then we'll pray. Just two verses this morning. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. All right, we're in Romans chapter 1. We're working our way through this first portion of the book of Romans. And Paul has basically finished introducing himself to the people and sharing with them something of what's in his heart. And he concludes in verse 15 that now he's ready to come and preach the gospel to all who are in Rome. His heart is, you might say, palpitating with this desire for and this readiness or preparedness for gospel ministry. He wants to come to the believers that are in Rome, and he wants to bring to them a deepening message of all the benefits that have opened up to them through the gospel so that they may explore and so that they may experience the depth of God's grace and God's peace, that they might live in God's presence, enjoying him, that they might enjoy in God's presence God's pleasures, Paul says, I'm praying for you grace and peace upon you. And he wants to minister to the depth of the grace and peace that comes to them because they believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. And so he wants to have a gospel ministry among the believers. It's something we continue to do. It's once you've come to Christ and you believed in Christ, you're now not secure in heaven and then you just go on living your life. But you've just come into the entryway of the eternal cathedral of God's blessing and life and it's there for you to explore and know and understand and there for you to glory in. You've been restored into a relationship with God and with that relationship comes benefits that you've yet to know and imagine. And we want to lead one another into those blessings. And so we have a gospel ministry to one another. At the same time, Paul declares that he wants to come and have fruit among them. That is, he wants to come and along with these believers, he wants to lead more people to Christ. He wants to see more people come to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, discover all the benefits that come to them, the salvation that comes to them through that faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's he's wanting to bring the gospel and see the gospel flourish in the life of the believer, but he's also wanting to bring that gospel, that good news, and see that gospel flourish in the life of the unbeliever. He wants to have a gospel ministry to both. Here's what the gospel is. We phrase it a number of different times and we've stated it in different ways and we've already gone through this and we'll go through it some more. We'll go through it over and over again because we should never tire of hearing it. The gospel's good news that declares the bad news first. It declares that we are sinners facing and deserving the wrath and judgment of God. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Yet this God who hates sin and will judge the sinner, this God of holy wrath and justice loves us still. And he came to earth in flesh as a human being to save us. He lived the perfectly moral life that no human being has ever lived and cannot live. And he was that one sinless human being who fulfilled the righteousness that's required to enter into the presence of that holy God. And then he died sinless in our place to suffer the punishment our sins deserve and that are required from a holy God. He could do this. He could do this. He could die for us in our place for us because though he was one man, in his perfect righteousness, his life was worth more than all of our lives put together. And he took that perfect, righteous, holy life and staked it out for our benefit. 
He also suffered for our sins, dying for sins in this way, because it was the only way that God could come in flesh and live the life he requires of us, and then holy, sinless, bear our sins in our place. This was the only way that God could righteously pay for and forgive our sins himself. Was he had to bring it upon himself. He had to die in our place for us. It's the only way that God could, without judging us, forgive us righteously. And so he did so to prove and demonstrate his righteousness. And we know that it was righteous and the offering was righteous and it was right and good because three days later, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross, rose again from the grave, demonstrating that everything had been paid for us and that God had fulfilled the righteous requirements in order that we might walk and be with him. And so he says in verse 17, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's the other part of the gospel. These two verses, we find Paul giving us the theme of the whole letter he's going to write. In a sense, these are the two most important verses in all the book of Romans because Paul is laying out the whole theme of his message. It's the basis on which a righteous God makes righteous sinners. It's how a righteous God spares us from the wrath we deserve and brings to us a righteousness that comes from faith to faith. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed to declare this to you. I'm ready and I'm eager to bring this message to you. Being forgiven by God, being washed of your sins, being reconciled to God, receiving eternal life from God, being put in a position where you're brought near to God, and you're brought into a relationship with Him so that you may, from this holy God who hates sin, you may enjoy the experience of His unending love forever and ever and that's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, Paul says he's not ashamed, but that he's ready to proclaim. Paul says he's ready to preach that gospel, and we spoke about this last week. This means that Paul knows what the gospel is. He knows it because he's experienced it himself. He knows its benefits in his own life, and he also knows the benefits and blessing that it has for and holds in store for all those that would believe in him and receive this gospel. He's ready because he knows the message. He knows what it means he knows it in his own life. He knows it in his mind. He knows how to simply express it to others and declare it to others. And so he's ready in that sense. He's ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within him. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And there we saw something of an example of what it meant for Paul to be ready. Not only does he know the message or the hope that lies within him, but he's also ready because he's prepared to bring that message in a certain manner. Here's what we read in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. There it is. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. That is, to give an answer for the gospel, to give an explanation of the basis of salvation. With, it says, meekness and respect. We would understand that with gentleness and respect. Verse 16 adds a little proviso. I didn't mention this last week. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, that is, we're being instructed that by the Holy Spirit, we're to share the hope of our salvation and the hope of the gospel to others with gentleness and respect and from an obedient life that demonstrates the goodness in the will of God. You know, all that God wants you, all that God commands is not to make life difficult for you. It's not to make your life hard and just to kind of ride you. It's 
All the commandments of God are to position you to live under his goodness and to experience his goodness and to flourish in that goodness. And our life is to be expression of living in the good will of God, living in the good will of God, speaking to others the gospel with gentleness and respect. This is what Paul is talking about. So what follows again in Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 is this important declaration of the whole theme of the book. And so it's important that we get it right. And we're going to talk on this passage more than once. We're going to look at this more than once, maybe a few times. But now I just want to explore this one basic statement Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's kind of interesting. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we're going to just ask ourselves, what does he mean by that? What is Paul saying when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? The basic point here, and I think you'll see this by anybody who's commentating this and anybody who knows grammar, anybody who knows the idioms of the Greek even, that Paul is basically saying, he's finding a negative way of saying, I'm really proud of the gospel. Paul is stating a positive by way of a negative. It's called a litotes is what it is in English. That's the grammar for it. We use it in other ways. We say things like, it's not rocket science, right? Or we say, she's no spring chicken. Or we say, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And these are all negative ways of saying things like, it's really simple, and she's getting old, and he's really dumb, right? But we say it with a negative to make the positive. Paul is using this same form of grammar to basically say, I'm proud of the gospel. I boast in the gospel. In fact, there's another passage in Galatians chapter 6, 14, Paul declares the same idea and he uses somewhat, it's not the same grammatical structure, but he uses a similar negative approach to accentuate the positiveness of his boast in the gospel. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, but God forbid that I should boast in anything else except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he speaks of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just another way of summing up this message of the gospel. God forbid that I would boast in anything but this. What Paul is saying is, what I have to boast in in the gospel is so wonderful and so proud that I would not waste my energy on anything else, boasting in anything else. And, and God, God forbid that I should. God deny that I would do anything but boast in the gospel. He's exalting in this one and only thing. It's so great. It's so wonderful. But this stating the positive by a negative only makes sense to some extent if it's juxtaposed against a real contrast that exists. It's juxtaposed against something that does take place. It only makes sense that Paul would only boast in the gospel because there are many who boast in other things but the gospel. It only makes sense that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there are many who are ashamed of the gospel. And so what Paul also means here when he makes this declaration is that he has confronted this temptation to be ashamed with the gospel. And he's found victory over it. He's conquered it. There's a danger. There's a very real danger and reality of being ashamed of the gospel by which you're saved. It's bizarre. It's twisted and we know it. It's incongruent with what we find to be true in our hearts and yet we sound it out and find it. Notes where we're ashamed of this very thing that took us from death unto life and took us from the the sense of meaningless and darkness into light and eternal hope. It rises up within us. 
The enemy is always there stirring it up with us. He heaps upon us the scorn that we will also meet in the world in which we live in. He heaps upon us the scorn for the very message that we bring and the very hope that we claim. And Paul said the message of the gospel was to the Jew an offense. They considered it something scandalous. He said to the Greek in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it was to the Greeks it was sheer nonsense. It was utter foolishness. And we feel that. We sense that. We're aware that people scoff and their heart scoffs against the very message that we want to bring to them. We can be ashamed of the gospel because of its sheer simplicity. It's very straightforward answer to the chief problems that people have. You know, you can talk to an individual and they're lamenting problems in our society and we're listening to them and we're wanting to find a way to converse with them. But our minds are decoding the situation. Our minds are taking it all the way back to the ground floor and it's this. It's just that people are sinners and they're lost and they're selfish and they're separated from God and they're removed from His grace and they don't live in it. And even when they want to and they know what is good and right to do, they don't have the power to sustain it and they fall back upon their sinfulness. And you know what they need? They need to be forgiven and they need to find life in Jesus Christ and they need Him to live in them and give them the grace and power to live the kind of life they can't live without Him. And well, it's going to go on like this until there's a preponderance of people that are trusting in Him or until Jesus returns. Do you ever say that to anyone? (laughs) You know it. You decode it. You know that's the answer. But you say, yeah, it's really... a confusing time (laughs) yeah it's a difficult age in which we live in and you don't say anything to them because you know the answer you want to give them is so simple that they won't listen to you you don't share it with them because you know that your answer is not going to be sophisticated enough or intellectual enough or it's not going to be politically adept enough you know the Greeks heard Paul preaching they were all these great philosophers they heard him preaching in the marketplace eventually they pulled him aside the leaders and said explain to us what you're telling everybody else but this is how they described Paul, he said, there's, he seems to be some babbler of some strange religion. This is just a bunch of gobbledygook. And that's what it sounds like, right? And you know what? You know it. You know oftentimes that's what it sounds like. There's so much other noise in their heads that they're looking at you strange. And we're ashamed because we know that modern people think that we're not very modern. That we're just bringing before them antiquated notions of sin and judgment of wrath and hell and heaven and We feel ashamed because they've laid stereotypes on Jesus and stereotypes on us. And, you know, we kind of feel like we better not say anything because we'll just confirm their stereotypes. And we don't want to do that. And We're ashamed by way of association with those who are proclaiming the message. We look out and we see man alive. A lot of the people that I hang out with, that I fellowship with, are kind of weak and foolish and they're poor and they're not very important. That's just the way the church is made up of what is... Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. You see, my brethren, your calling, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, that is, not very many powerful and influential, not very many noble are called, but God has chosen the knots of this world, he says, the nothings of this world to confound the people who consider themselves wise in the world. But you know, you do the evaluation, you think, ah, I don't know. I've told this story, but I just told this a few weeks ago. When I was a little boy, I'll tell it again, just for you who missed it. When I was a little boy, I heard that the Snake River Stampede was going to have a performer, and it was going to be Roy Rogers. You know, I had a Roy Rogers toy, and I love Roy Rogers and Trigger and Dale, and so I was excited about this. And so I heard Roy Rogers was a real Christian, and so I started praying that Roy Rogers would come to my church. I knew we had to go to church on Sunday, you know, so 
you have to, Lord, bring Roy Rogers to my church. I'm maybe uh, in fourth or fifth grade. And, and then I started looking at the people in my church. I started evaluating the people who were milling around the church. And I started getting embarrassed at the thought that I'd have to introduce Roy Rogers, the people in my church. So I went back and said, Lord, please don't let Roy Rogers come to my church. Right away, the seed was being planted to be ashamed of the gospel. I shared this with Ignacio and my son. We went on a long drive yesterday and we were talking about these things. Ignacio came to Christ after he had graduated from college and while he was working as a manager at a, a Target. He was reading the Bible over and over again because he was trying to find all its flaws and then he'd go to churches and his sport was to try to find people and convert them to atheism. Which, by the way, I just had a conversation with a guy kind of like you, Ignacio, just at a wedding two weeks ago. He, he said if, if I gave him 30 seconds, he could prove that I was an atheist. So we had a good conversation. But another Ignacio, right? But Ignacio met Christ, believed in Christ, and was wonderfully saved. Ignacio was telling me when we were talking this about this idea of being ashamed of the gospel. He said, well, I'll tell you, you know, my parents were migrant workers and they went around and worked on all the different farms. In fact, if you want to play a game with Ignacio sometime, try to find a crop that he hasn't harvested or planted. It's a tough game. You won't win. The, you won't win. That was his life and that's how he lived. So when he was a kid growing up, he began to become embarrassed with his parents when people would ask you the question, you know, what do your parents do? So he didn't want to tell them. You know, my parents are migrant workers or farm laborers, he would say, well, my parents are farmers, but that got him in trouble because they'd say, oh, really, where's their farm? How many acres do they have? You know, what do they farm? What do, you know? And of course, that created more tension and more pressure on him. He was ashamed of them, though it was through their labors that he covered his head at night and he ate at night and it's what kept him alive long enough to be the first one in his family to graduate from the university. Oh, we can be ashamed. It shows up in the fact that we, we cut away the harsh words and the unpopular words of the gospel and we try to avoid speaking about sin and punishment and death. We can champion a soft God of love and a jolly God who just wants to go around and give people hugs. And We can try to communicate the cross in the most intellectual manner so we sound really smart or we're really sentimental with them. We ignore God's justice and we ignore these things that God says that are preliminary to understanding his gospel. I took a man with me to Ecuador many years ago. The first time I went to Ecuador, he was an elder in my church and he had, he had tried sharing his faith with all kinds of people. He worked, worked in a big office building in downtown Calgary, but wasn't effective at all. Later on, he told me the reason. He was always trying to debate and win some kind of apologetic debate. He was trying to show that he was intellectually able to carry along with them. And when he returned from Ecuador... He actually led a number of these men to Christ and he started a Bible study. He ultimately had about 10 or 20 people that were meeting in a Bible study before work once a week in this office building in downtown. Lionel asked him, How, what changed? He said, well, you know, I discovered the power that comes from just telling people about the Lord Jesus. Why didn't he do that before? Why was he trying to tell all those other stories? Well, for some reason... The idea of some guy that walked around in sandals 2,000 years ago and had a beard and said profound things. You know, for some reason, that was a little embarrassing to talk about. That's the hero of our faith. That's the person who brings it all together and we drop on it. You know. So let me show them first that I can go with them toe-to-toe in their intellect. Let me show them first that I understand the complexities of life. And then I'll tell them about these things. And it wasn't very effective. Well, that's kind of how it is with us. That's how it works with us. That gets into our system, and we'll instead try to think of some way to 
sell to people what it is they want to hear or what they are demanding from their society. We'll find a way to talk about, you know, how they can find meaning in their life, how they can find moral clarity in their life. We can tell them the gospel is a place where they come to find purposeful community and service of others. We'll appeal to their desire for significance and security and safety and we'll somehow put the gospel together in such a way, what we think is the gospel, in such a way that we can bring it to them this way so it's, it's unoffensive and it's unobtrusive in their lives. Have you ever felt embarrassed when somebody is witnessing the gospel in your presence and sharing the gospel with somebody? I have. And actually sometimes for the right reason. You know, sometimes it's because their life is really not upholding the witness. This was not a gospel experience, but a number of years ago, I went golfing with a man who attended my church, and we got paired up with another couple. This guy was not having a good game, and so he was getting angrier and angrier. His face was getting redder. Every time he'd shank a shot or he'd not hit off the tee box right, he'd start pounding his club on the ground, and he'd slam it on the ground, and he'd start muttering at his breath, and you couldn't tell what words he was saying because it, it sounded like those cartoons we used to watch, you know, the fricker, fracker, ricker, racker, 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 you know. <laughs> so he's muttering all these things, and he's getting angry and angry, but it was like, you know, you know, it was just really very, very intense, and it was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing, and then we're on about the seventh tee, and they asked him what he did, and he said what he did for a career, and then he turned and said, and, and this is Joel, he's my, and I was going, no, 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 you know, <laughs> he's my pastor, and well, I didn't want him to let me, you know, this guy was, I'm his pastor. He was like, uh, I was ashamed of the situation and the performance. If you're going to testify to your faithfulness to Christ or walking with him, you should probably not be cursing on the tee box. You should be living your life in such a way that your conscience is clear. That's what it says here in Peter, 1 Peter 3. Um, I've also, just a few weeks ago, was called and asked if I would pick up a man who was a well-known evangelist who travels around and does evangelism all over the country and maybe you need to meet this fellow anyhow because of the work you're doing overseas. I'd like to put the two of you together. And I found out that he didn't have a ride to the airport. He had been conducting a ministry out in the valley with some churches. And so he told me where I could meet him and pick him up and then I would spend a couple hours with him and take him to the airport. I met him at a Starbucks where he'd been dropped off. His suitcase was there. I, I spoke with him. He said, well, very briefly, he says, well, my ministry is really I pass out tracts and I confront people with the gospel. It was exact. I confront people with the gospel. And he says, and I, I usually do it wherever I'm at, but I, I won't do it here yet because I had to wait for a little while because usually they kick me out once I start sharing the gospel. First clue that maybe it's not the proper way of sharing the gospel. I'm picking up his bags and now it's his cue to start sharing the gospel. And he gets up and he starts just going after everybody in that place, you know, you know, you know, you understand that all of you are sinners, you know, the wrath of God, and, and he's trying to stop the people working, just listen for me a moment, sir, young man, listen to me, and, and they're all confused, they have a job and a responsibility to do that place, other people have come because they're trying to wake up in the morning, and, you know, the things are going on, and this is their place where they relax, and going after him, and, and I'm embarrassed, and then when we're done, he shares with me that he's very popular because he's made videos that are gotten thousands and thousands of clicks and where he goes into marketplaces and goes in places and he shares the gospel and he mentions how many times he's been arrested by police. I went and looked at one and he went into a situation which was not set up for a gospel witness. People were conducting business. He starts preaching. Someone politely comes and asks him to leave. He says, I have a right and if you don't want me to be here you can call the police and they did. And I was embarrassed. I was not. It was not gentle. 
and it certainly wasn't respectful. And it didn't seem to be the right place at the right time, and it wasn't. Later on, I started thinking about that, though. I'm not advocating for that kind of presentation of the gospel whatsoever. But I've thought about it, and I realized that many times I've had the exact same feelings when the message was declared clearly from a godly life, and it was set forward directly to persons in a kind and gentle and firm way. And what I could see, they didn't like what they were hearing. When I could see that it was offending them, when I could see that it was making them uncomfortable, I was kind of like feeling uncomfortable with them. I was feeling something of the embarrassment. There's something that's within us that doesn't like people to feel shame, and I'm uncomfortable. I don't like to feel it myself, and I was comfortable when I felt like there was a little shame coming upon them, and it's like I wanted to, hey, let's ease off. Let's back off. And But is there ever a right place and time to offend people? Is there ever a right time to make people feel uncomfortable? Is there ever a right time to trigger people's self-righteous disdain for whatever? Listen, if you preach the gospel clearly and you state it plainly and it is clearly understood by anyone, it will bring an offense no matter how you share it. It will make them uncomfortable if they gather in what you're telling them and understand its implications. It will make them feel uncomfortable and the natural flesh in any human being will disdain words, those words for that very reason because it goes against their own establishment of righteousness that they're riding on, which the Bible says is like filthy rags. Yes, we have to be gentle and yes, we have to be respectful, but I also began wondering as I meditated upon this last experience, which was really bothersome to me, and it continued to be bothersome to me, and then somehow God was just saying, Joel, how often under this guise of being gentle and respectful and tactful and all those types of things, have you hidden your shame for the gospel? And I was convicted. Because it's a temptation and a subtle temptation. Pilate handed Jesus over to the crowds because he wanted to please them and curry their favor. Pilate's terrible. But, oh, that temptation, in one way or another, still threads its way through our lives, wanting to gain and curry the favor of others and to appeal to them. And it sets upon us in this strange temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. In Hebrews chapter 12, 2 we read of the Lord Jesus Christ that for the joy that was set before him, that's us, we were the joy that was set before him. He wanted to win us and gain us for himself. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Paul conquered this temptation. He knew that his Savior had died naked on a cross for his sins to bring him life, everlasting life. And he was going to live to proudly proclaim that Savior and his salvation. I'm afraid, I'm afraid too many Christians have succumbed to this temptation. Ignacio told me that after he became a Christian, the big thing that was a surprise to him was how many Christians he had known, numbers of Christians he had known and worked with who had never told him about the Lord Jesus. Not once. And it was sad to him, he said, and it was 
He didn't understand it. It was confusing to a person who had come into life to see that take place. Well, let's look at this next thing, because if we only go there, I've just made you feel guilty. And maybe I've made you feel a little ashamed of that. But, but we have to go on beyond that and look beyond that. And how was it that Paul conquered this temptation? He says in verse 17, He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And let me just tell you three places where Paul saw the power of God unto salvation to those who believed. And it was the demonstration of the power that loosened hold of any reticence and any shame that he had in the gospel. It was the power of the gospel that he saw being unleashed in people's lives. This is ridiculous that I should be ashamed of something so wonderful. The first thing was he remembered the power of the gospel that he had seen in the lives of believers who had gone before him, those who came even before his own belief. Remember, Paul was one who persecuted the Christians. He chased them and pursued them to death and threw them into prison. And here's what he discovered. He discovered as he was persecuting them that they were discovering the joy of being persecuted for the Lord Jesus. That as he pressed it upon them, they were pouring out peace and comfort and grace because God meets us when we suffer for him. And God provides for us victory in the midst of those moments. And he was seeing the power of the gospel expressed from the very lives that he was pressing in upon. He was seeking to wield them destruction. And the more he did it, the more and more bitter he got and the more and more joyful they became. And it was the power of the gospel. An example, he was of the synagogue that Stephen came into and disputed with them and they had no answer for Stephen. And so because they couldn't answer the wonderful truths that Stephen was bringing to them, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of Christ of all the hopes of the Jews that are found in the Old Testament, when they couldn't defeat him, they brought accusations against him. And then they brought them before a council in order that Stephen might be judged. You'll find it in chapter 6 of Acts. And at the very end of it, it tells us that the council looked upon Stephen as they were trying to judge him and they saw his face as of the face of an angel. He was exuding and manifesting the joy and the glory of being put in the vice of their testing and of their judgment. A judgment that led to Stephen's death. He was the first martyr. And Paul will tell us that he's the one that presided over the death of his martyrdom. And he guarded over the coats, which would have been the presiding position of somebody who was in charge of the group of individuals who were carrying it out. He guarded over the cloaks of the men who stoned him. A very violent way to die, by the way. Luke is the one who gives us the account in Acts chapter 7. And by the way, Luke would have known this from the witness of Paul. Because Luke traveled in the cohort of Paul. He went with Paul and did missionary work with Paul. And Luke tells us at the end of the stoning of Stephen, Paul would have seen this. Paul would have heard this. That Stephen looked into heaven and said, Look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then Stephen says, Lord, over and over again it says, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. He's being stoned. It's a horribly violent way of dying. And then as he's being stoned, the description that Paul would have given to Luke was this. Luke says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And then we're told that while being stoned, he fell asleep. That's the power of the gospel. 
the violence and the wrath of men being calmed by the precious sleep of God in the midst of a violent world such prevailing peace so powerful Paul saw it with his own eyes later on when God confronted Paul on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians the Lord Jesus he said Saul, Saul why persecute thou me you're doing this to me and then he says to Saul it's hard to kick against the goads or the pricks what he's saying is I've been showing you truth and it's galling you I've been showing you my power of the gospel and it's galling you it's hard to do it isn't it you're just suffering under it because you're resisting what you know is true but Paul saw the power of the gospel in the lives of those that went before him and then Paul experienced the power of the gospel in his own life he experienced it Paul was awakened by God and he was awakened to his deep spiritual need and his separation from God and he knew he wasn't in the right place and he knew there was nothing that he could do and that he had done trying to prove how righteous and how zealous he was for God that it hadn't solved his problem at all and following all the laws he knew he was separated from God and then Paul seeing this and recognizing that he was still lost in his sin repented of his sins Paul put his faith in Jesus Christ and he believed in him and Paul was instantly turned to him in order to ask him Paul says Lord what do you want me to do just show me what to do and Paul began to receive the regenerating work and power of Christ coming and God pouring his life into him. And Paul, who was a hater and persecutor of Christians, became a lover of Christ and a lover of people. He wanted to bring them just good news. He was ready to do it. That became his life. Drawn out from because of this great regenerating life that he received in Jesus Christ. And then Paul found the witness of the Holy Spirit coming to him, giving victory to him over all kinds of temptations, including this temptation. Including this temptation. Do you have a testimony like that? Do you have a testimony like that? Being awakened to your need. Really deeply repenting, not of some bad thing you've done, but your complete sinfulness. Knowing there's nothing in you and nothing you can bring to God that would wipe away your sins, but that you're completely dependent upon God's answer for you and then discovering that his answer is in his son who died on the cross in your place for your sins in order that he might, in exchange for your sinfulness, give you all of his righteousness. You have that moment when it dawned on you that your work was done, your labor to prove yourself was done, and you freely received what you had not paid for but was given to you? And the freedom you turned, your heart was turned by the Spirit and said, God, what do you want to do with my life? Tell me. I'll do it. Do you have that testimony? Of then him pouring into your life a regenerate life so that what began to rise out of you was something that you didn't inherit from your parents? Not just a good self-image or, you know, a, a pleasing nature. But he began to pour in you love and desires and impulses that were strange and new and wonderful and sublime and divine because they were of God. You have that testimony of facing down temptations and finding victory because you cried out to God to deliver you, and he did. The disciples faced this temptation of shame and fear. They were threatened with their very lives. They said, we can't help but proclaim what we've seen and heard. Just understand that this is what we have to do. But it's still, they were still afraid, and they went and prayed and said, oh, God, help us. They're threatening us. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says they went out proclaiming the gospel boldly. They found through the, they found the power of the gospel and the witness of the gospel. Finally, Paul saw the power of the gospel because he saw the effects of the gospel that he gave to others. 
He saw that when he pushed through that temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, he saw what the gospel produced in those that heard it and it was proclaimed to. He saw the power of the God released in the words of the gospel. Here's something interesting. It doesn't say here that the gospel communicates the power of God. It doesn't say the gospel has within it the power of the God. It's not that the gospel brings to us a message through which we receive or understand the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. Its words actually encapsulate and it resonates with power. It's like Paul saying, it's not me. This is what I discovered. It's not me. It's not my tact. It's not my ability. It's not my skill. It's not that I'm deaf. It's that the words itself, the gospel message itself, pure, unadulterated, without my input, without lettering it with myself and my wisdom, just that word, that message is powerful because God's power is in it. It's the power of God. It's the same word that God spoke with his words and he created all creation. And when a person hears and their ears receive the word of the gospel, power, the power of the gospel comes upon them. That's interesting. He's not even saying, you know, Lord, I'll share this message with you if you'll give me power from the Holy Spirit. Because if I don't have this power in the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be able to be successful. And there's some truth to that. But let me just tell you, You get power from the Holy Spirit just so you can overcome your temptation and your fear of being ashamed. But it doesn't make the gospel any more powerful. In fact, go out fearful. Go out in fear and trembling like Paul says he did, right? Paul says, I came to you in fear and trembling. But he preached the gospel. And in the message of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit was released upon the people and brought change. It's the message of the gospel that's the power of God. Not how powerful you are in the Spirit. Oh, God gives you help by the Spirit just to overcome your temptations, to be bold. But it's the message that's powerful. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul saw it again and again and again. He saw lives being wonderfully transformed. He saw the gospel hitting people and changing their lives in ways that we cannot imagine. It seems like a dream to me. I've been going overseas for 30 years. I've sat in dark huts preached on mud floors, been in penthouses, been in every continent except for Antarctica, bringing the gospel to people. I'll go back in my mind and I'll think, oh, did that really happen or not? You know, it's like a dream. But then I'll go back and I'll find the notes that I've written through the years and it's it's even better than what I remember, what God did in people's lives. Alexei and Nova Rasisk, who having heard the gospel said, I'm an Orthodox Russian and I have all through communism never stopped praying my prayers and I'm not interested in what you have to offer. No problem, Iglesia. Good enough. So the things we've talked about, I've written it down so you can look at it should you be willing to. But if not, I'm not offended that you didn't like what I had to say. Two days later, he comes and seeks me out. What's this, what's this information? Who wrote this down? Where did it come from? Oh, it's, not, it's nothing special, Iglesia. It just explains the gospel through scripture, the gospel of God that I was trying to share with you. I don't know, but there's a prayer at the end of it. Who wrote this prayer? Well, I don't even know. It's not really important. It's just an expression of a person whose heart is confessing their sins and declaring that they're believing in Jesus Christ alone. No, you don't understand. I've been praying these prayers my whole life. I've been going to the Russian Orthodox Church, going through the prayers, and and last night I read through this, and this was convincing to me, and I prayed this prayer, and something's changed in my life. 
I've never experienced anything like it. What is it about this prayer? Nothing, Alexei. It's the heart that's being turned by the Spirit to God to believe in his gospel. And then he's asking, am I righteous now? Will this righteousness leave me? Will it last with me for all eternity? These are the kinds of questions he was asking me. For three hours we spoke with one another. I didn't remember how long it was. I went and looked at my notes yesterday. Three hours he kept asking me until I had to leave. At the end of it he said, you know, I was in New Orleans on the 4th of July because I was a merchant marine and there were fireworks that were going off over the ship. It was exploding around us. I'd never seen anything like it. The tears were running down our faces as we were laying on our ship watching the fireworks exploding over us and over the harbor where we were at. And I just want you to know it's... It's nothing like what God is doing in my heart right now. Nothing like that. That's a light toadies, by the way. <laughs> it's using a negative to express, this is far superior. This is wonderful. It's a crowded room in Bekasi, Indonesia, where I shared the gospel with a group of individuals, and they prayed to receive Christ, and they came back the next day to disciple them. And they had brought more people into this room. We were huddled around this room so packed tight it was suffocating. There was a dim little light that had to be like, do they make 20 watt light bulbs or 10 watt light? Because that's what it seemed like it was. And it was tell them, our friends are here, tell them this story and tell them that story and tell them about what Jesus did here. Explain that to them. And I couldn't even begin the questioning because they kept telling me to tell their friends what they were responding to. It became a little church. Lots of stories like that. What is it? It's the power of the gospel. If you will, in your fear, trust that the gospel is powerful, more powerful than your fears, and that the power is not in your bravery, but in the words of the gospel itself, and you'll be obedient and share it with others, this is the testimony that God will give you. And God will lead you into victory. And you'll be able to say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You might not want to put it that way. You just say, I am so proud of my Jesus and the gospel. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And yet, against the indelible testimony of your word and what you've done in our lives, how easy it is to slip back under the persuasion of this world and the subtle temptations of the enemy. But God, anything that drives us from the clear, loving, earnest declaration of this message to others, oh, give us victory over it, we pray, dear Jesus, so others might know the power we know ourselves. For anyone here this morning that does not know that power but feels the weakness of their own flesh and their sin and knows, dear God, they're not right before you, right now by your spirit, let them know they can be if they will just but acknowledge and trust and believe in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.